to the Tech Money Podcast, where the worlds of technology and personal finance collide. Hosted by certified financial planner, speaker, blogger, and self-proclaimed personal finance nerd, Malcolm Etheridge. Each episode aims to make you just a little bit smarter about your money, all from the perspective of the tech professional. Without further delay, here's your host. Hey there, listeners. Malcolm here. And on today's show, we're talking investments. More specifically, we're talking about investing in farmland and other agriculture as a means to diversify your portfolio and earn passive income. Whenever we think of investing in real estate, we tend to think of either single family homes, apartment buildings, office buildings, or maybe shopping malls. But rarely do we think of buying raw or developed land as a means to invest in real estate and enjoy all of the financial benefits that tend to come along with it. But in fact, Farmland is actually considered to be one of the least volatile investment vehicles available when compared to other asset classes. More to the point, real assets such as farmland tend to act as a good ballast in a well-diversified portfolio that helps reduce volatility in moments where either the stock market or bond markets are going haywire, or both. And while I'm happy to share my thoughts on alternative investments and their ability to act as a non-correlating asset class in an investment portfolio traditionally consisting of stocks or bonds or mutual funds or ETFs that everyone has access to, I am by no means the foremost expert in the world of investing in agriculture. So I decided to call up someone who is. Peter Badger has been a full-time investor in real estate and agriculture for nearly a decade now and recently joined the team at Farmfolio as their new chief strategy officer. Prior to that, Peter spent 18 years working on Wall Street and a decade working in Silicon Valley, where he co-founded Framehawk, an enterprise software company he later sold to Citrix Systems. Peter is also a world traveler and has lived in Denver, Medellin, Puerto Rico, San Francisco, Hong Kong, New York, Valencia, and London. So with that brief introduction, welcome Peter Badger to the Tech Money Podcast, sir. Thank you, Malcolm. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I, I breezed through your resume pretty quickly there in my intro. What should I have included? Um, really that I love travel. I love meeting new cultures, new people. And if I can combine my investing or a job with it, I'm mm-hmm. your man. I mean, that part is clear. I don't know how you even narrow it down when a person asks you a question like that, right? And in, in addition to the world travel, I read online that you're also like an avid skier and runner and race car driver and bullfighter and mixed martial artists and all kind of different action sports. Like what's going on, man? What you determine, are, are you determined to replace the most interesting man in the world in the Dalsecki's commercial ads or, or, or what's happening? Did you ever see the uh, Jim Carrey movie with the yes man where he like says yes to everything? That was me for like 30 years. So I've, uh, I've stopped saying yes. Um, <laughs> frequently at this age yeah no that 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 makes a ton of sense it explains a lot too um because you have to be uh in a in a mindset to say yes a lot to to end up in some of the uh the places that you've been but what made you move from the world of tech and startups in silicon valley which is certainly in vogue right now and it has been for the last i don't know 30-ish years really um to investing in something as simple and frankly, unsexy as agriculture instead of, say, venture capital, right? What did you see in that space that the rest of us are missing? Yeah, I I think for me, I mean, 18 years on Wall Street, you know, like everybody else, I lost my money in the dot-com bust. I lost money Mm -hmm. in the global financial crisis. And so I came to the end of actually an eight-year Silicon Valley startup journey. Mm -hmm. And these things are brutal. Um, to go through VC fundraising, Series A, Series B, through acquisition, eventually, you know, it, I'm grateful. I was one in a thousand that managed it. 
but I was spent emotionally, yeah. physically. And the question became, okay, now you've made a bit of money, how do you keep it and grow it? And that's really what got me on this journey of investing in real estate and specifically farmland after a couple of years in that realm. Hmm. That the the comment you made about having lost it all or, or, or uh, a significant portion during the dot com you know boom and bust um, kind of smacks of where we are in today's market where we're seeing the the Nasdaq uh, tumbling 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 Bitcoin is is getting whipped around too that was the go to for a lot of people and the quote unquote meme stocks and I know that in times of increased volatility and especially when investors feel that a res- recession is on the horizon. They tend to look for uncorrelated assets to hide out, hide out in. Um, have you guys seen an influx of new interest over the last couple of months or so uh, since, as I mentioned, Bitcoin's cratered, Nasdaq's tumbling and, and the Fed's threatening to raise interest rates on us? We, we have. And it's actually even, you know, double worse because of inflation. Because hmm. I think, you know, the reason I ended up so, you, you, you know, I sell the company. Um, it was a sub 50 million deal. You know, the VC took 90% of the money. You know, that's the way this <laughs> game works. Um, but, you know, the, you know, the small portion of me and my co-founder had, we said, you know, where do we invest it? Now, I'm from Wall Street. Yep. So I know the stock market cycles. So I went to all of my Silicon Valley, you know, CEO peers, you know, multi-exit guys and said, listen, where do you put your money when you made a bit to keep it? Because I don't trust the stock, you know, the public markets. Mm-hmm. And they all said to me, listen, we make our money in public and private company stock and then we invest in real assets like mm-hmm. real estate and farmland and and that was really to your point it is uncorrelated and farmland especially is it's actually it's not uncorrelated it's, it's not so the stock market could boom and bust bitcoin can you know be volatile as it is mm-hmm. uh, real estate cycles can you know go to the peak and the trough but people are still buying food I think that's where agriculture for me came in as both inflation proof and not correlated with anything else in my portfolio. Yeah. Well, let's let's dig in a little bit more there. Then can you just explain what farmland even is? Right. I know it sounds like it should be somewhat self-explanatory, but I know investing in something like an avocado for uh, avocado farm is not the same as investing in timber or wheat or even cannabis. So can you just define sort of the space from your perspective? Yeah, so I think you see kind of three classifications to invest in agriculture as a general asset class. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go to the public markets like everybody else. You can find like a fertilizer company, people who actually do things in the farming space. And there are mm-hmm. many companies like John Deere where you can get exposure, but they're few and far between. More importantly, they are in the same cycles as all the other public paper stocks. Um, you can go to REITs. You know, you have these REITs that own a lot of land and farmland especially, similarly, they'll cycle down the stock market. Then on the other side, you have the alternative investment space, and there's really two classifications, either syndications, where you can invest with a group of people, pull your money together, and buy a farm, and there are vendors who provide that. And then there's this classic, you know, asset class area, subclass, which is farmland ownership. And that's really titled farmland in your name, entity, you know, IRA, and, and that really is where I've been specialized in the past six, seven years. Hmm. Well, so you, you mentioned uh, the different places you 
could hold the assets and we'll we'll dig into that one a little bit too but is there any sort of advantage to owning farmland in my portfolio as opposed to a building or a single family home or should i be thinking about this as a complement to my traditional real estate holdings you mentioned holding real assets being really where the the opportunity is to uh I won't call it necessarily make safe money, but you know, it's, it's, it's not correlated, like you said, to anything else, but should I be thinking about this as a sleeve of my real estate holdings or is this the real estate holding? No, this, this is so like, let's take my asset allocation. Um, Mm -hmm. I have maybe 10 to 30% of the stock market for liquidity. Like everybody else, you can get the money Mm -hmm. out by spending a retail from a mutual fund. I then have 60% in us real estate. And that's mostly multifamily, mobile home parks, those real assets that give a decent appreciation and cash yield. And then honestly, 30% international farmland. And the advantage with that is twofold. Number one, if it's titled farmland, you control as long as you you get the income from it. Mm -hmm. Because you buy a syndication, the asset manager of the farmland decides how long you hold it. So I'm looking for multi-decade returns because that's yeah. what farmland gives you. Um, more, more importantly, I think for me, I actually have international farmland, not U.S. farmland, because I wanted a portion of my wealth not fully exposed to the U.S. dollar, because mm-hmm. you know, 30 trillion was hit yesterday in the debt cycle in the U.S. That would come yeah. back and bite us one day. Empires fail eventually. Hopefully it's not my lifetime, but it could be my kid's lifetime. And the kids, how do you protect yourself against that You know, more doomsday scenario? Interesting. Yeah, that's a whole other rabbit hole that I, I, I'm going to I'm going to avoid taking the bait there and, uh, <laughs> and keep this thing on on track a little bit. But I, I, I heard you going into your own personal asset allocation there, which I think helps to illustrate the way that you're thinking about this, because obviously you're 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 bought in. You're you're yeah. you're definitely um, biased in your approach. But if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, right, if I'm planning to allocate, say, 10% of my overall portfolio to real estate. It sounds like you're saying farmland would represent two and a half or 5% or some smaller number of that 10% I've allotted for my real estate holdings in that portfolio. Is that is that the right way to think about it? It is the right way to think about it. I mean, I, I, I really tell people this and I put $3 in US real estate and I put $1 mm-hmm. in overseas farmland. That's my ratio Got right it. now. I was gonna say, but I'm surprised you only mentioned having 10% in real estate. Because let's just be honest, the old stock market, you know, 60% equities, 40% bonds, that whole thing in the 90s, that's dead. So yeah. I recommend 50% in real estate, no matter the asset class at that point. Yeah, no, I use 10% because it's a, a, a nice round number for the sake of math. I, I think that I'm glad you brought that up because it's a good time to point out that I'm not making any investment recommendations in this conversation. <laughs> I am simply having a uh, conversation for the sake of educating the the listening masses yeah absolutely and trust me no one's making recommendations right now this is a conversation everybody has a different risk profile uh do what you're comfortable with so let's talk about farm folio specifically for a moment can you just explain how the platform works what it is what it does yeah we're like you know if you like look like a um, turnkey single family rental provider we're the same for farmland so you come to us we've already purchased the farm at scale, we break it up into individual lots, and then you own a lot. So you pay between thirty-two and sixty-five thousand dollars, depending on the tree crop, the age of the trees, the income, the appreciation model, 
and we just take care of all the farming for you. We then actually take the fruit, we wash, sort, export to the US or Europe, and we then sell it in Walmart, Trader Joe's, Costco, all the stores you buy from today, and give you the harvest income. So it's really a turnkey farmland product. And so you mentioned the, the trees, you mentioned the crops, those sorts of things. What type of uh, farmland are you guys actually cultivating? Like what types of crops specifically? So the way to think about farmland as an ownership model is there's kind of two types of crop. There's a row crop, which is mm -hmm. things like what you see most in the U.S., you know, um, barley, wheat, um, pineapple. You plant it and hopefully within a year it gives you the crop and you can sell it for harvest uh, money for income. And then there's uh, permanent crops, which is trees. So mm -hmm. citrus, lime, lemon, orange, uh, avocado, coconut. And that's where you actually plant a tree. You wait three, four, five years for the harvest to start, depending on that tree crop and genetic. And then it basically keeps producing to its peak in year seven or eight. And that is where we play in the permanent crop space mm -hmm. because there's a lot of effort in row crops and there's a low barrier to entry. Most people aren't willing to wait four or five years for their yeah. income. And so for us, let's choose high-end premium fruits and plant a tree, get the farm running, and then break it up and then give it to people like you and me to earn income on for between 20 and 60 years in a row. Well, something else you started started to mention kind of got my antenna up. In preparation for this interview, I read that you guys have managed to secure partnerships with Costco and Walmart and Trader Joe's and a few other big name grocers that you were starting to, to name. What is it about this model that you think attracts those sorts of major players? That's a great question. So the way you think about this is let's take one of our core offerings, which is the lime, Persian or Tahiti lime. Um, it's the same type of lime, but basically most of the production of limes in the world is either in mm -hmm. Mexico or Brazil. All the Mexican limes flood into the U.S. market because it's a short you know, trip by truck. All the Brazilian limes mostly go to European markets. And the key about actually those locations on the planet is they are seasonal. Hmm. So there is a massive volume of limes from Brazil and from Mexico in the summer months. And then it stops. The beauty of Colombia and some of the South American economies is it's a very different point on the planet, different altitudes, different climate. We can produce uh, limes as a, as a citrus fruit variety for 12 months of the year. And so, hmm. of course, it's all about you know, differentiation. We go to Walmart, we go to Costco and say, hey, do you want containers of limes every week, all 12 months of the year, consistently? Because yeah. you and me don't stop drinking our Corona with a lime in or stop food preparation <laughs> with lime um, just because the season's over. That's why we really uh, have competed in those supermarkets. I don't know who told you my go-to summer beverage, but you are right. I, I do prefer <laughs> mine with a lime. Uh, but uh, So you, you started, again, talking about... Uh, uh, you started this by talking about investing internationally and, and your concern about being solely denominated in U.S. dollars and, and the risks that come along with that for you. But then you also threw out there Colombia. And from what I understand, you guys invest specifically in those emerging markets such as Colombia, right? Is there any advantage to owning farmland in developing countries rather than in, say, California or Texas, which has plenty of farmland, too? There is, and it's all about the climate and the variables that make farmland great. 
So let's think, let's, I mean, it's easy to pick on California, okay? There is no water in California. Mm-hmm. And so you look at Colombia, I would, you know, I'm always data-driven, Malcolm, in my investing. Mm-hmm. Trust but verify. Look at the glossy brochure and then go and verify the data on the internet. <laughs> you can find everything nowadays. And so type in world precipitation map and it'll come up and it'll show you that basically Colombia as a country has mm-hmm. the highest rainfall of any country in the world. California mm-hmm. is pretty much a desert. You know, it's four inches a year of rain in, in Fresno Valley, you know, San Joaquin Valley, Fresno, bring up the charts like four inches of rain a year. Yeah. And in Colombia, it's 118 inches of rain a year. And it's consistent through all 12 months. And so I laugh when people say, oh, why don't I find some farms in the U.S.? Well, there's multiple reasons. It's not just climate. It's the cost of land has gone through the roof because mm-hmm. there's high competition for it. Um, the land has been ruined by big ag over you know decades upon decades, mm-hmm. uh, with chemicals and fertilizers. And, and then the other side, this is labor. The two biggest costs to farm are land prices and labor. And would you rather play... 14 bucks an hour in California or a buck 40 in Colombia, which is a decent living wage. Yeah. So there's all these factors to think about when you go into those U.S. agricultural products. They just don't make money. Well, say a little more about that, because I, I keep reading about all these different companies that are uh, responsibly sourced is the term. And it fits into that ESG bucket that makes us all feel a little bit better about paying a premium price for uh, the same good that we could walk across the street and get from the people that don't really care that much about the environment. Right. The coffee shop that gets their beans from the best Colombian farmers who get paid a, a great living wage and that sort of thing. Is that sort of the same way that you're 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 talking about? here where you guys are using uh local farmers who the wage and the the consistency of it is part of the model and that's the reason that you guys also are 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 focused here in this space or is it solely to your point you know the economics of i mean colombia's just got a ton of rain and it just makes perfect economical sense and oh by the way we happen to do some good yeah it's it's so let's kind of like break that question into two parts the first part is honestly Colombia and Latin America, Peru, you know, Chile has some of the best agricultural land in the world with the like climate and soils, but it also Mm -hmm. has multi-generational farming capabilities. Um, So, you know, the best coffee from, you know, comes from Colombia in the world. Therefore, Mm -hmm. we have our lime farms in the same place. We're just leveraging those, you know, inherent um, skills and characteristics of the land. I see. Uh, that's That's the kind of like the reason we're down there. But to your point, wouldn't you rather farm where it's cheap? and then sell to high premium customers in the US and Europe. So it's the arbitrage between the high purchase price of the fruit mm-hmm. by Walmart and Costco's compared to the cheaper farming, um, multi-generational farming back in developing countries. That's where you can make a nice spread as a farmland owner. And that's why it doesn't work just going straight to the US. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so you, let's say you sold me. Okay. So so you've you've convinced me that I need to incorporate farmland into my broader portfolio because I am uh, cheating myself if I'm limiting my my focus just to publicly traded exchanges here in the United States. Right. And what I'm thinking about as we're talking about this is back in season one, we did a whole episode on self-directed IRAs and how investors are able to use them to invest in real estate and privately held businesses rather than 
traditional stocks or bonds or mutual funds or ETFs, like I was saying, I think it's episode 14. I'm pretty sure it is. Is farmland also something that I could hold inside of a self-directed IRA the same way? Or is this reserved only for taxable or what's called non-qualified money? No, you can hold it in either a an IRA, tax deferred, um, or regular, just pay with cash. So that's the beauty of this thing. I think from our perspective, the reason farmland works for me and my partner Kiki and our personal portfolio mm-hmm. is we kind of backed into a certain income number per month. Mm-hmm. So you can go into our brochures and say, listen, this farm produces you know, 12, 14% returns for this amount of cash input. And it's, it's good for 20 years if it's a lime tree, 60 if it's a coconut crop. And we basically just modeled it on the back of the envelope. Listen, we want five lots, three lime, two coconut. They're going to basically grow over the next two or three years in my IRA, and they're mm-hmm. going to spit out a certain income level. And to your point, we're not going to tailor income until we're you know, in our 70s probably. And that's really where we're building um, this portion of our portfolio. Because we know at that point that there will still be cash producing mm-hmm. and will be compounding during that period in our IRA. Uh, and and that's the beauty of it, you know. So so yes, you can own it in any way, shape, or form. Trust, IRA, personal name, joint names, you name it. Interesting. Any idea what the uh, the income and or asset level breakdown is for the folks you uh, that you know of who are investing in farmland? And I don't mean just specifically through farmfolio. Farmfolio. I won't put you on the on the spot that way, but is this something that is widely adopted among what we consider mass affluent who represent folks in the uh, investable assets range of a hundred thousand to a million say, or folks considered high net worth with investable assets of, I think it's like a million to 25 million or something, or is this solely for the ultra high net worth folks who have above 25 million or 30 million in investable assets, right? Is this, do you know what the breakdown uh, is presently? Yeah, so I'm very clear on um, why I joined this company, Farmfolio, because mm-hmm. our goal is to let everybody who has a portfolio have a portion um, as a Farmfolio. So when you think about most of the farmland offerings today, they're all syndications. They've got to be accredited, you know, million dollars in net worth or 200000 in salary or 300000 as a couple. Yeah. Um, I was pretty annoyed that when I got into this, most of my family and friends couldn't be in the same farmland syndications that I was in. And so I met this company, Farmfolio, five years ago. I started investing in their product. I eventually only joined a year ago. And mm-hmm. that's because anybody can buy a farmland lot through Farmfolio. Um, there is no barrier. It's actually a piece of real estate. So the same way that anybody could buy a piece of real estate today in the US, you can buy a piece of real estate in Colombia. It just happens to have 220 Tahiti lime trees that are producing, <laughs> you know, beautiful limes being bought in Walmart. You get the income versus rental income of rental property. So that's the beauty of it, really. And uh, our goal is to democratize uh, farmland ownership because it's been something that hasn't been available to all of us in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, how many headlines, Malcolm, do you see like, oh, Bill Gates, the, you know, the biggest farmland owner in the United States today? Those headlines don't help you and me, the little people. So really, the farm photo was about bringing smaller portions of large farms scaled properly uh, that could be available to you and me as an individual owner. Well, that that's why I brought that part up. And I, I was going there because traditionally when folks want to invest in an alternative investment, uh, 
such as farmland, for example, the SEC requires that they be in a, an accredited investor, as you just laid out, and they have different income and or asset requirements um, that are set in stone. And one of the things that I, I, as a practitioner, as a financial planner in my day job, one of the things that I'm torn about on a daily basis is whether I think that that is fair or not. And what I mean by that is not that I am on the side of the Bill Gates in this this uh, example that you just laid out saying only Bill Gates should have access to the best of investment opportunities. What I do mean, though, is there's so many platforms out there now that are making so many things that have been held for just the the one percent or the top 10 percent of the one percent. Right. As investment opportunities, the whole reason venture capital, there's so many venture capitalists who are billionaires and they got that way over 30, uh, 30 years or so, not necessarily because they're geniuses, but more so because they were the only ones who had access to the club. Right. And so I'm torn because there's also the side of me that sees people investing in things that they have absolutely no idea what the heck is going on under the hood. And they're just throwing money at it, hoping that they, too, can become Bill Gates. And that's where I think the SEC's rules, the heart of that law is intended to try and get at. But I don't know where the right side is. And so I guess in all of that long journey that I just took in, in expressing that thought, my question to you is, why do you think that it should be democratized and something that's available to literally everyone instead of having income and asset thresholds? I think from my perspective, um, it frustrates me that the SEC regulation around those asset levels and or income, mm -hmm. that was designed 30, 40, 50 years ago mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. no longer appropriate information is more free nowadays and honestly we're all you i mean i have so many people in my network who don't have a million dollars in net worth but they sure. work you know in corporations they're a type personalities they're data driven shouldn't they be able to decide what they should or shouldn't invest in so yeah. i think the gross criteria for an accredited investor was designed decades earlier and to your point i mean you can buy fine art as a group nowadays there's all these different platforms Financial services and fintech is going to innovate in every single asset class over the next 10 to 20 years. The yeah. SEC is out of date, not relevant, and not capable of regulating any of it. So I think that's just the reality of it. And that's you know the reason we've seen Bitcoin rise and other mm -hmm. things, because mm -hmm. there's just the kind of a, I should be able to make my own decisions based on my own um, risk appetite and comfort. Uh, and I get that they're trying to protect people from scams and maybe things that are quite complex. Sure. Um, yeah, I just I just think the growth exaggeration of the accredited investor profile is a, a little bit insulting for, for today's day and age with so much information freely available. Fair enough. I do think there are probably changes to those requirements on the horizon. I know that they recently made a, a small shift in saying that folks who have significant knowledge in the space, i.e. folks with like investment licenses and backgrounds in the, the space, uh, they brought down, you know, some of those requirements. I think the next wave is going to be figuring out a way to uh, push down the income scale a little bit more. Um, yeah, that's my own you know, interpretation yeah, of yeah, but it's the inner circle again. You know, everybody has finance knowledge. Oh, great. It's yeah. the inner circle. It's the Wall Street. It's the, you know, this isn't what this is about. Democratizing is about giving everybody the same access to all of these instruments. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm all for democratization. Um, yes, you may get some companies who will push products on people who shouldn't be 
um, basically buying it. Uh, but we make sure that our salespeople and our company overall is making sure it's appropriate given their asset level, sophistication, and knowledge. Um, so, so yes, it's going to rely upon our sales policing each other, isn't it, to some degree? Um, yeah. Because this train can't be stopped by the SEC at this point, honestly. So you've given us quite a bit to, to chew on, so I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Um, and my last question actually has absolutely nothing to do with uh, investments, so you can relax your shoulders a little bit and, and, and uh, uh, sit, sit back in your chair. But let's say for a moment that you never began investing in farmland and you never found your passion for this business at all, right? But money wasn't a factor in your decision making. What do you think you'd be doing right now? Oh man, that's like, <laughs> you're asking somebody who's like been grinding for 30 years to take care of their family, what they would have done if there wasn't an issue. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, honestly, music. I would have started okay. a music startup. I have a passion for music. I love listening. Um, sadly, I can't play because I've had no time and instrument, but uh, yeah, it will be all about music for me. Okay, that's that's something. Well, I tell you what, Peter, we really appreciate you coming and, and, and doing this interview uh, with us. This was a great one. Um, and I understand that you're, you're setting up sort of a separate uh, channel for folks to reach out to you, listeners of this podcast to reach out to you. Uh, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and or Farmfolio after this goes live? Yeah, so you can go to our website, go to farmfolio.net slash tech money. And it's farmfolio.net slash tech money. And yeah, you can find me at peter at farmfolio.net. And listen, we'd love to chat to you. If you have a brushing interest, want some educational materials, want to just dip your toe in and learn a bit, we are here to help you. So uh, I appreciate your time today, Malcolm. And uh, I love what you do. Great podcast. And thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Well, on that great note, Eric with an A, why don't you go ahead and close us out, sir? All right, gentlemen, this has been a fantastic podcast. Peter, I have a follow-up question, and, and we'll see how this goes. So if I do invest and I do buy some property through you in, in Columbia, can I live there at any point? Because sometime, I think when we do hit a certain point here in the U.S., I'm going to want to exit. Can I can I set up camp on a, under a coconut tree? Um, you cannot. We have agreements that don't allow you to pitch a tent, but um, <laughs> what you can do is you can take the amazing harvest income and rent yourself a lovely apartment down there. There you go. That's That sounds fantastic. All right. Well, thank you again, Peter, for being here. Uh, you've been a fantastic guest. Of course, Malcolm, thank you for having him on the show. And our last thank you is always reserved for you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Tech Money Podcast with Malcolm Etheridge. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Malcolm comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. We humbly ask you to share this podcast and leave a review, as this will help other people find this show. You can connect with Malcolm on social at Malcolm on Money. We'd love to hear from you and answer any questions you have, and you can do so by emailing them to podcast at techmoney.com. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at Tech Money, our hope is that this show helped make you a little smarter about your money. This has been the Tech Money Podcast. For more information on today's topic, to review the show notes, or to catch up on past episodes, be sure to check out malcolmetheridge.com slash podcast. And if you have an idea for a show topic that you'd like us to cover, or you want to send us feedback, the web address again is malcolmetheridge.com. You can also find Malcolm across all social media platforms at Malcolm on Money. This episode was written and created by Malcolm Etheridge, with the production, the editing, and sound controls powered by Proudmouth. This has been a Malcolm on Money original. Thank you for listening.
The information shared in this recording and by its guests represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not represent the views or opinions of the host. This content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This content is not, nor is it intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. It is always recommended that you seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your personal financial situation.